In this episode, I have for you five stories, true stories, of men who changed America in one way or another. None of them are good men and none of them are bad men. Some you have heard of, some you have not. But all of these men lived around the same time and some lives even crossed paths. In this episode, I'll be sharing with you the story of John Sutter, Sam Brennan, Sam Barlow, James Savage, and David Maynard. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get on to it. This is Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast, and this is Ricky Mortensen. Have you ever heard of the Four Olds? As China became a communist-run nation, they initiated a cultural revolution and called to rid the country of the Four Olds. Those being old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. In order to rid of these four olds, they promoted the four news. New customs, new culture, new habits, new ideas. Part of this campaign included the renaming. All over China, the names of roads and stores were taken down and new names were made. About 93% of just Shanghai was totally renamed. The hospitals, the stores, the streets, the schools, statues of old emperors were torn, uh, torn down, as well as those of the Buddha. The point of doing this is really simple. Demoralize the opposition who were anti-communist and to erase history, promoting the new revised, approved history from the elite. Well, not long ago, a similar but slow cultural revolution began here in the United States, and we began to see history changed. Statues torn down, roads and schools renamed. One such statue and name that was defaced was that of John Sutter, a man who, like all of humanity, was both a good and sinful man, who did more in his life for his new country than most people today could ever hope to achieve. He is viewed now as an evil slave owner whose name should be erased from all society and replaced with what is approved by the ruling elite. So let me share with you the full story of John Sutter. Not just the good G-rated stuff, but not the cherry-picked R-rated stuff you hear about today. So for starters, his original name was Johann Augustus Sutter, born sometime in February of 1803. He was raised up a working-class boy and became an apprentice in a printing shop. There, he went on to be a clerk at a clothing store. Around 21 years old, he married a rich widow, and he opened his own store. He was really bad, like really bad at money, and did the typical spend more than you make kind of thing, to the point that he was going to be sent to a debtor's prison. He refused to ever go to debtor's prison. So he left his wife and kids in the care of his brother and told them he would send for them when he got everything in order in the New World. Using a French passport from Paris, he sailed to New York, getting there in 1834. He Americanized his name to John Sutter, but added captain to his title to make himself look better. From there, he made it to St. Louis, then Santa Fe, then over to Kansas City. He had to flee Missouri because he had too much debt there as well. So he joined with a missionary traveling west and made it to Fort Vancouver, which is near Portland, Oregon. From there, he got on a ship to the Sandwich Islands, known today as Hawaii. He was supposed to get on another ship from there that would take him to the fishing village known as Yerba Buena, San Francisco, but he missed the connection, so he had to do what he knew best, 
and befriend the Hawaiian Kanakas, dignitaries from Europe and America, and was given some men and two women as servants by King Kamehameha III. The, then, using his handy-dandy credit card, he bought a ton of freight and hired a ship called Clementine and sailed to New Archangel, Russia, which today is Sitka, Alaska. After doing some business there, he sailed, finally, to that little fishing village in California. Once he got to California, Sutter made his way to the capital of Mexican California, which was Monterey, getting attacked by Native Americans a few times on his way. He met with Governor Juan Alvarado and told him of his plans to settle the land and asked for some free land. Governor Alvarado, wanting to keep Americans from coming and to control the Indians that roamed around, stealing horses and attacking his people, he agreed to give Sutter some land, but for a price. That price being that he had to live in California for a full year and convert to Roman Catholicism. He agreed. Soon, he saw an opportunity, and his credit card couldn't refuse, Fort Ross, which was a Russian fort built mainly for fur trading to Spain. The company that ran the fort was the Russian-American Fur Company, and their charter was just about to expire, and they were being ordered to leave California back to Russian America, Alaska. So he bought it. Sutter finally got that land grant from Alvarado and named it New Helvetia, and was given by Governor Alvarado the right to, quote, represent in the establishment of New Helvetia all the laws of the country to function as political authority and dispenser of justice in order to prevent the robberies committed by adventurers from the United States and to stop the invasion of savage Indians and the hunting and trading by companies from the Columbia. Quickly, his workers, which consisted mainly of Kanakas and friendly Indians, built the fort that still stands today in Sacramento, Sutter's Fort. They planted some fields, planted some orchards and vineyards. Sutter basically wanted to build an agricultural utopia. Now, I said the friendly Indians helped build the fort. Well, there were tons of different tribes that roamed around California, each having their own identity, beliefs, and customs. They had wars against each other and enslaved each other. Just like the African slave trade that was run by the Africans, there was an Indian slave trade run by the Indians. That doesn't make it right, but it shows that it was not created by the white. I say this because that's a very inconvenient fact in history and surprisingly isn't well known. Sutter was given many slaves. He himself captured many slaves. He killed many slaves. He treated the slaves like slaves. He gave slaves as payment and as gifts. William Leidesdorf, for example, who I did a story about a while back, had the Rancho Rio de los Americanos clan grant, which is where modern-day Folsom is. He was a mixed black man. Sutter gave him slaves as payment for some debt, and he gladly accepted it. Sutter employed a ton of people. Many were Indians, some Californios, which, by the way, just means Mexicans that lived in California, Kanakas, which just means Islanders, um, and, and Americans, and so on. He overhired because he wanted everyone to have a job and make some kind of money, which really hurt him in the end because, just like writing that little store, he spent more than he made and incurred a huge debt. Now, let's move to another piece of the Sutter puzzle. Mexico removed Governor Alvarado and replaced him with a man named Miguel Terena. Mexico could see that there would be a war between them and the United States, so they needed to raise capital to fund the war. 
which in government terms means taxing the peasantry. So Mexico made it up to Michoacana to collect these taxes and gave him an army of murderers, thieves, and rapists that they were um, that they released from prison for this very cause. As Michoacana made his way north to collect the taxes, this army began murdering, stealing, and raping the Californios and Americans that lived in the land. This caused a mini civil war in California between Mexico and the Californios. Sutter was caught in the middle of it, having to make a choice like Robert E. Lee of country or community. He chose country. This choice was made easy for him by Michael because he tripled Sutter's land grant with a snap of his fingers in exchange for his service. Miko Torreina and Sutter geared up with their makeshift army and their secret weapon known as the Sutter Gun, or the Four Pounder, which he got when he took over Fort Ross. It was a powerful cannon built by Russia to fight Napoleon, and it was then taken to Fort Ross, which was now in Sutter's control. They marched 500 miles down south, because the Californios ran down to L.A. to get the Californios from there for this battle. And over in Camarillo, where, which is midway between L.A. and Santa Barbara, they fought. The Californios shot first, but their powder being crummy, the cannonballs just landed at Sutter's feet. And Miguel Torreina and Sutter returned fire, but they were absolutely ignorant in how to fight and shot their cannonballs way past the Californios. Oh, and the felon army that Torreina had brought with him? Yeah, they escaped. Because ammunition was scarce and expensive, after the battle, where nobody got hurt, each side ran around the field picking up their balls to reload like a Nerf gun fight. That night, the Americans secretly met and decided this was dumb, and they went back home, leaving Sutter and Torreina to basically fight alone against the Californios. So, they were captured. Miko Torreina deported back to regular Mexico, and Sutter was tried and found guilty of treason, penalty being death by hanging or beheading. Fortunately for Sutter, one of his neighbors stood up for him and told the mob that Sutter was just doing what he did because that was his job. That was sufficient enough of an excuse, so they let him live, but took away the cannon, burying it in three different pieces in case they never, uh, in case they ever needed it again. Which, by the way, fun fact, it was dug up and was used in all the major battles against Mexico during the Mexican-American War a couple years later. Now, one day, one of Sutter's hired men came to his house, soaking wet from the fall rain. Sutter was surprised to see him and welcomed him in. James Marshall, the hired man, then told Sutter he had some very important news to share with him, and they needed to go somewhere private where no eavesdroppers could listen in. So Sutter led him to one of his private rooms. Marshall told him to lock the door. Sutter laughed because there was nobody but him and the clerk in the house, but he obliged and locked the door. Marshall put his hand in his coat pocket and took out a towel, which he then opened with his hands to reveal a few little yellow rocks in the towel. He then told Sutter he thinks it might be gold, though the guys back at the mill where Marshall found these rocks laughed at him. Sutter got out some books and they did some science experiments to see if this yellow rock, these yellow rocks were in fact gold. They were. Marshall left in the dark pouring rain back to Coloma to guard the mill and search for more gold, while Sutter had dinner, went to bed, and headed up to Coloma at 7am the next day. <laughs> 
Sutter and Marshall did a little prospecting, and for the next few days would check the mill to see if any gold appeared. And sure enough, a little bit every day was collected. Sutter would even jump into the tail race of the mill, dive down himself to grab some of the gold. As soon as he could, he had the gold melted down into a ring, his family coat of arms engraved on the front, and on the inside the words, the first gold discovered in January 1848. He had an all-hands-on-deck meeting where he told the men to keep this gold thing a secret for a minimum of six weeks. Of course, a lady named Miss Wimmer couldn't keep her mouth shut and told some travelers after just two weeks. One of the men got himself some gold and went into town, went into a bar, ordered himself a bottle of brandy, put the gold that he had on the counter to pay for it. The barman was just amazed and asked where he got this gold. He replied, go ask Captain Sutter about it. He did, and Sutter told him, who then told his boss, Mr. Brannan, who immediately set up shop, becoming very, very rich. Soon, Sutter's land was trampled by miners searching for gold. Practically everyone quit working for him and ran to search for this gold. His empire was finished. Eventually, he sent for his son, John Sutter Jr., who was an accountant, and he did his best to fix his father's financial troubles. He did, but he was getting lowball orders or offers from people for this land, and he was agreeing to it, which really ticked off John Sr. One of the last straws was when Jr. named the city of Sacramento, Sacramento, instead of Sutterville. Jr. was eventually kicked out and moved to Acapulco, Mexico, while the rest of the Sutter family came to America and they moved to the modern-day Yuba City, where a ticked-off neighbor lit his house on fire, leaving him homeless. Sutter decided to move to Pennsylvania, pay off all of his debts, even of that in Europe that made him flee in the first place, and for the rest of his life begged Uncle Sam for retributions, for the plight that he was in after the gold rush destroyed his empire. Though not a poor man, he played the victim and acted like he was to gain pity from the government. Though he was getting a pension of 250 bucks a month, which today is like $6,000, he was aiming for a one-time lump of 50 grand, but the United States was too busy working on rebuilding after the Civil War, so he got nothing. He, did, he ended up dying in a hotel two years after Congress adjourned without approving his money. I'll end this story with a quote from The Extraordinary Life of John Sutter by Nicholas Ferraro. John Sutter is a fascinating individual in the history of the American West. He is more than simply a figure in time. He is a character who experienced a life reserved for tragic heroes. The study of Sutter's life demands sympathy, but he's not to be pitied. Even though he fell on hard times, he also stumbled upon many great fortunes, Sutter was a charismatic person who created great opportunities. His optimism and desire to succeed are notable and were perfectly suited for Mexican California. Throughout his life, Captain Sutter viewed failure as a stepping stone, a chance to learn and accomplish greater things. For this reason, he should be saluted just as frequently as he is criticized. Chair and see if you can see what's coming through the air. Ladies 
ladies and gentlemen, the 59 Chevy. See it? Isn't it beautiful? Some car, huh, folks? That was the 59 Chevy just then. All new, all over again. In case you missed it going by. We're gonna give you all another try. See it? subliminal way. We hope that you'll place your order right now for the 59 Chevy. Here's how. Just go see your Chevrolet dealer right now. 59 Chevy's due out Thursday, October 16th. But you can get the details and place your order in advance. So come right in and ride away to your Chevrolet dealer. Many people who headed west, either by ship or by wagon, back in the mid-1800s, were pro-American. Or at least pro-opportunity, which America is called the land of opportunity. It was just a matter of time before the United States would manifest its destiny to have the land from sea to shining sea. But not everyone had a positive view of America, such as the Mormons. Mormonism started in 1830 over in New York. They believe a bunch of things that are at odds with the Baptist, Protestant, and Catholic doctrines who view them as heretics. So the Mormons were pushed out, not welcome in many towns, and they continuously fled until they made their own little town called Nauvoo over in Illinois. This is where we meet Sam Brannan. He's a kid living in an abusive home, and when he had the chance at 14 years old, he fled to Ohio to live with his sister and brother-in-law. There in Ohio, he became an apprentice at a printer shop, learning that trade. Soon, his brother-in-law converted to this new religion called Mormonism. From there, his sister and he himself converted and went all in. He was called to be a missionary, but before that, his dad died, and he inherited some money. So he moved down to New Orleans to join up with his brother, and they bought a printer's press. The plan was to start a newspaper. He also invested in the booming housing market over in Cleveland. His brother ended up getting yellow fever and died, and then the market busted, leaving him with worthless property. So Sam moved back to Ohio and became a missionary. He met a gal that he liked, and they got married, and they had a kid. Then he went out to the mission field where he was assigned, met another gal that he liked, married her too, abandoning his first wife for her. This new couple had four kids. By the time Sam was 25, he started a Mormon newspaper aptly named The Prophet. He ran the newspaper with one of Joseph Smith's brothers, William. One day, Joseph Smith and another of his brothers, uh, Hiram, were in jail in Illinois because they incited a riot. Turned out, Smith ordered a newspaper to be destroyed because they were non-Mormons and were printing unpopular things about him. <laughs> and uh, they were also being tried for treason. Joseph was technically the mayor of the town of Nauvoo and was also running for president of the United States, so it was a very interesting case. Well, about 200 or so people rushed the jail and shot Hiram in the face, and then Joseph, but then he jumped out of a second-story window 
and fell to his death. And then they shot him a few more times, just for good measure. At this point, the Mormons were in crisis mode. Their leader, prophet, and mayor was dead. They decided they needed to leave the United States and go west. But there was also the issue of who would be their leader. Sam Brannon believed it should be Joseph's brother, William. But the majority decided to put a man named Brigham Young instead. The fact that he was not in favor of Young's appointment was viewed as a dire sin, and he was disfellowshipped, excommunicated. About a year later, he was reinstated into the church and was called to lead the New York faction of Mormons to the West. All eyes were set on this new land called California, specifically Northern California. So while Brigham was to lead the overland camp, Sam chartered the ship from New York around Cape Horn to the Sandwich Islands for a pit stop and then to California. While in Honolulu, a guy you may know if you saw my episode about him, Commodore Robert Stockton, boarded the ship and inspected it. He told Sam about the plan to overtake California for the United States. Sam was not too happy about this. He, like all other Mormons at this time, hated the United States. But he sailed on. When they got to the Yerba Buena, the small fishing village that we now know as San Francisco, he looked out into the distance and soon he screamed these words, By God, there's that damned American flag! From Yerba Buena, they set out to find a place to call their own. They settled on a nice area in central California near a river and called this land New Hope. This is the modern city of Ripon, which is between Stockton and Modesto. There was not much hope for New Hope. It died out pretty quick. And soon, it was learned that Brigham decided not to go to California. He figured that the area near the Great Salt Lake would be a better option because the Americans were all about going to Oregon and California and Washington. Nobody seemed to care about Utah other than using it as a pit stop. Sam loved California too much and decided to stay while a bunch of the Mormons then went on to Utah to join up with their leader. And after a while, Sam grew further and further from the Mormon faith. He set up a newspaper in San Francisco called the California Star, which ended up being the second newspaper ever made in California and the first in San Francisco. And then he opened up a store at Sutter's Fort over in Sacramento. Now, one day, word got to Sam about gold being discovered. He went out to John Sutter's house and asked if it were true. It was. And he was told to keep it a secret. He did, for a little while. Just long enough to buy a bunch of land, buy a bunch of gold mining supplies, rack up the prices. For example, a gold pan he bought for 20 cents sold for 15 bucks. He told his newspaper men to type up a report about gold in the Sacramento area. But as soon as they heard about it, they got up and left to go mine for gold themselves. So he got himself a little bottle of gold and took a ferry down to San Francisco. And as soon as he got off the boat, he started waving his hat and screaming, Gold! 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 From the American River! You could call Sam Brannon the Paul Revere of the gold rush. Soon... Sam opened a few more shops, verbally leased government-owned land to his Mormon buddies, and charged them a 30% finder's fee for any gold that they got. In the Mormon archives, they claim this to be evidence of him taking tithes from the church members, but it isn't accurate. It was pretty evident that he left Mormonism, and the people then sent their tithes to Brigham in the mail. 
As Sam got more and more rich, Brigham Young tried to take over the newspaper Sam ran, but he ended up selling it just in time to another company to create the Daily Alta California newspaper. Young also sent tithe collectors to California to get the millions that they believed that they were owed from tithes by Sam. But he had left Mormonism, and he declined. He did give them some money as like a parting gift, but not the huge amount that they were hoping for. Eventually, the governor was asked by the Mormon miners if they really had to give 30% to Sam for a finder's fee. And the guy laughed at him and told him, this is government land, and if you're foolish enough to pay Brandon, he'll take it. They quit paying after that. Also, his wife left to go live in luxury over in Switzerland with Sam's money. Sam then went to be a rabbit with the ladies of the night, which gave him a, um, a certain reputation. At one point, over in San Francisco, a group of Chileans got attacked by some drunk Americans. This ticked off Sam, and he organized a group called the Vigilante Justice Group, where he was president. This group hung, deported, jailed, and sentenced people to hard labor for various crimes. You've heard of the, um, the Crips and the Bloods, right? Well, back then in San Francisco, the two notorious gangs were the Hounds and the Sydney Ducks. The vigilante group fixed the gang problem real quick. San Francisco became a law and order kind of city after that. The Mormon archives say that he was disfellowshipped, excommunicated, for his actions in this group as well. Sam continued to buy up land, raise the prices like crazy, and even started looking at other places like Hawaii and Southern California. He even tried to take over Hawaii. Yeah. Let me explain. Hawaii had an interesting relationship with the United States, and in the mid-1800s, the U.S. was expanding, as we all know. There were other expansion efforts being made that you might not know about. They were kind of like, they were secret expansion attempts, such as Cuba, Nicaragua, Lower California, Sonora, and two separate attempts for northern Mexico. Well, for Hawaii... It was taken over by Great Britain for a little bit back in 1843, and then France tried to take it over a few years later. So the Hawaiian government set up a top-secret treaty of sorts that said if France were to attempt to take over Hawaii, then Hawaii would cede all of its land to the United States. This was made in 1851. Rumors spread that King Kamehameha III was pretty much giving up his kingdom and was ready to retire and get some sort of pension for giving the United States his kingdom. But both Britain and the United States publicly stated that they wished to see Hawaii continue to be a sovereign land. But in 1851, Sam Brannan and a bunch of other people sailed to Hawaii to basically take it over. But the rumors were not as simple as they seemed. This top-secret deal was the nuclear option for Hawaii. In case of French takeover, break glass type of thing. Once Sam realized this, he left. He went there thinking he could cozy up to the king and be appointed governor general and his buddies governors of the different islands. That wasn't going to happen. To add insult to injury, when Sam got back to San Francisco, there was a big crowd and they were all asking, well, have you taken the islands? Who's the king? Is it you? To bring this Hawaii thing to a close for those that might be curious, the United States rejected this top secret deal from the king and it brought the idea to the forefront of Congress's mind. In 1893, some pro-American businessmen overthrew the Hawaiian government and annexed it to the United States five years later. Then, 60 years later, Hawaii became a state. Now back to Brandon. 
His wife that went to Switzerland came back after Sam Jr., their son, graduated from college, and she found out he'd been a busy bunny. So she got a divorce, forcing him to liquidate his entire empire and giving her half of the money. He was pretty much destroyed from there. But he kept on, though, and built himself a brewery and turned into a severe alcoholic. He was one of those kind of guys that also had new ideas all the time and came up with an idea for a luxury city over in Napa Valley. He wanted to create a Saratoga in California, Saratoga Springs being a fancy city over New York. But he was drunk when talking about this idea, and instead of saying Saratoga of California, he said Calistoga Sarafarnia. And that's why we have a city named Calistoga. He built the town to be a place for the elite and was squeezing out the poor pretty quick. At one point, he tried to repo a steam pumping plant and sawmill after a few drinks and was shot eight times. But like Rasputin, he lived. Sam's demise kept going deeper and deeper to the point that he was totally bankrupt. He set his sights onto Mexico, buying $1.5 million in Mexican bonds to support Benito Juarez against Maximilian. At this point, Napoleon III appointed Maximilian to be the emperor of Mexico. The whole thing is a really interesting study in and of itself, but basically, um, Mexico was in a civil war, so they stopped paying their debts to Europe. So France came to collect their portion and decided to take it over entirely. Both sides of the Mexican Civil War didn't really want the French, so neither of them would team up. And then the United States Civil War ended, and they were in support of Juarez over Maximilian. So they threatened war with Austria, which Maximilian was the Duke of. So both Austria and France said, yeah, never mind. So the whole Mexican takeover thing, and they left. This was really good news for Sam, who then was given 1.5 million acres of land. They didn't tell him, though, that this land was Yaqui land and they were extremely fierce Indians like the Comanche. So just as in the beginning of his life, when with that investment over in Cleveland, he was once again the proud owner of worthless land. Yay! His new Mexican wife divorced him after that, and he moved to Arizona selling pencils until he had enough money to buy a fig ranch over in San Diego, where he died not long after. He was unclaimed for about a year, just rotting away in a morgue, until one of his sons could afford a burial and give him a simple wooden stick as marker. Eventually, some random person got him a real tombstone. So that's cool. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this commercial is going to use subliminal, subliminal, subliminal advertising. That means you will never see or hear the name of the product. Oh, it'll be there on the screen, all right, but the naked eye cannot detect it. This way you sit back, relax, and enjoy me as I tell you this rather funny story. It seems that these three men decided to take a trip. The second guy goes back to the dry cleaner system. So he opens the little door, goes... So the third guy says, yeah, but you better bring back the hangers. <laughs> hey, real quick, I wanted to check in and say 
thank you for watching. I do this show on my spare time and it takes hours upon hours to research, write, and then to present this podcast here for you. If you like my work, please tell the tech overlords by clicking the like button and subscribing. It helps me out a bunch. Thanks. On with the show. You're listening to Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast. Here's your host, Ricky Mortensen. A huge part of why I love doing this show is you guys and your equal love for history and learning the local untold stories right here in our backyard. This next story was requested a billion times on Facebook by some clampers. And as the saying goes, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So... Here we go. Here is what I learned about a man named Samuel K. Barlow. Mr. Barlow was born back in 1795 over in Kentucky and was raised to be a tailor. Barlow was a tough Scottish-American guy with deep roots and good old-fashioned freedom brought to you by the brave men of the Revolution. Grandpa Barlow would often repeat the story of the time he refused to tip his hat to some Brit squire when the squire yelled, Hurrah for King George! He knocked that guy out. Daddy Barlow, also freedom-loving, loved his freedom to own slaves, which irked our Sam Barlow to the point that when he was old enough, he left Kentucky for the state of Indiana. Daddy Barlow didn't understand why he was so passionate about the whole anti-slavery thing, and so he let his son leave, thinking he'd be back as soon as he needed some money. But Sam never did come back. After about three days, Barlow and his son, uh, and his dad had a short conversation, which Daddy Barlow asked if Sam had given up his stupid beliefs on slavery. Sam replied he never had any stupid beliefs on slavery. Then Daddy Barlow, in his own way, trying to be kind, offered to sell one of his boy slaves for 500 bucks to give Sam as a parting gift. Sam refused and went on his way. Over in Indiana, he met a gal, and they had a bunch of kids, and they lived the good old life as a farmer. And one day, he murdered some guy with an axe. The victim must have deserved it, though, because the dead guy's brother petitioned for Barlow to be pardoned. And so did half the town, so he was pardoned. Now, you know how some people say things like, If that guy becomes president, I'm moving to Canada. Well, Barlow did just that when Henry Clay lost to James Polk in the presidential election. But instead of Canada, he sought the land far west, known as Oregon. So, true to his word, Barlow sold everything right away and headed west towards Oregon. When they got to the Dales, just east of Mount Hood in Oregon, they found themselves in a little predicament. The way to Oregon City and the Willamette Valley up until this time from the Dales was to hitch a ride on the river. But it was ridiculously expensive, and the wait list was pretty dang long, too. By the way, it was October at this point. So, Barlow looked at Mount Hood and the whole Cascade Range and said loud and proud, You see that mountain over there? I'm gonna climb that mountain. Everyone they met along the way said it couldn't be done. It was suicide. It was impossible. To that, Barlow said, God never made a mountain without making a way for man to go over it. He then looked at his wagon train and announced that anybody that learned the adaptability of the word can't is to follow him, and those that did not have that word in their vocabulary were more than welcome. So they set out on a mountain trek. All went well for the first 40-ish miles, but then they came to a bunch of canyons and stuff that made things, well, 
difficult. At this point, the cans and cannots were found out. The cannots wanted to turn back, but the strong ones, the cans, they decided to leave their wagons behind and trudge along on foot, on cattle, and on horseback. The whole way, Barlow kept reminding them about how their achievement of this literal mountainous task would benefit those that come after them. And as you can imagine, things were slow. Basically only going three or less miles per day, the days turned into weeks, the weeks into months. Winter was upon them, the snow was at least a foot deep, the kids were starving and crying, the women had blisters poking out of their worn out shoes, the storm clouds they could practically touch. The horses and cattle had nothing to eat but poisonous laurel which slowly killed them. The brave would eat the poisoned meat, and the rest of the party would just sit and watch to see if they lived or died. They lived. Dragging the corpses of their animal companions, cutting off a piece here and there to make it another day. A bunch of women met their breaking point. That is, until Barlow's oldest daughter, Fear, says he told a lady to stop her crying because as long as Bruno, the dog, was still alive, they would live as well. The dog being the last animal they would ever eat, but would if need be. After this, they all realized there was hope, after all. At one point, Barlow sent his son and another younger man to scout out the area and figure out which way to go. So they did. They had their own problems, like cutting down a big tree to cross a raging river, only for it to split and be washed away, then jumping into that very river, almost passing out from the current and the freezing temperatures as they fought to the other side. In the end, they all made it. Even Bruno the dog, arriving in Oregon City on Christmas Day. Barlow rested a few days, then went straight to work with a bunch of other men to build an 80-mile road for future emigrants to come across the mountain to Oregon. He set up a toll booth to pay for his investment, letting plenty of people come through free of charge, and once he recouped his investment, he donated it to the government. Barlow Road is known historically as the main thing that contributed to the prosperity of Oregon more than anything up until the railroad, which just follows the Barlow Road, by the way. When Barlow died, an inscription was put into his tombstone. Oh, do not disturb the repose of the dead. Behold, the pure spirit has risen and fled. Nor linger in sadness around the dark tomb, but go where flowers forever will bloom. Beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain Dew. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Mountain Dew will tickle your innards cause there's a bang in every bottle. At the county turkey shoot, cause Luke warn't worth a hoot. He was hopeless till he finally took the cue. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Now he shoots off the cup, gets more'n enough after nipping at that good old Mountain Dew. Sure is shooting, there's a bang in every bottle of our delicious soft drink, Mountain Dew. It'll tickle your innards. Imagine being born in 1817. Your mom dies when you're just 10 years old. You spend the majority of your time growing up doing chores and 
learning languages, eventually being able to speak a few tribal languages as well as French and German. Imagine then, at 28 years old, you decide to head west with your new wife who is pregnant. The wagon train you are part of is a mixture of a few different parties, including the Donner Party. Along the way, your wife gives birth, but dies from the freezing temperatures. And without a mother, your newborn slowly dies from the elements. Let me introduce you to a man named James Savage. A very interesting man, to say the least. What I just told you is the majority of James's life. 29 years old, he arrives in California, not knowing he too would be dead in just a few years. In 1846, he finds himself at the famous Sutter's Fort. He quickly volunteers to fight in the Mexican-American War as part of the California Battalion led by Fremont. Most people didn't like him all too much. He was even described as the worst malcontents in the battalion. While in this battalion, he learned from some of the Indians about a nice area known as San Joaquin Valley. So when the battalion was disbanded, he moved down there, flirting with the different tribes, learning their languages, and pretty much assimilating into their culture with his own little flair and secrets, which were pretty messed up. James's last name wasn't just Savage. He himself was Savage. He knew the tribes were pagan and believed all kinds of mystical and occult things. So he played the part of the white witch doctor. He had a galvanic battery. Yes, I said battery. You can check me on this. I was skeptical myself. It's true. That he hid inside a bearskin and would shock the hell out of people and things to demonstrate his supernatural power. One time, he shocked a boy so bad that it stopped his heart, then did some big and shocked him again, restarting his heart and bringing him back to life. This instilled a great fear into the Indians, seeing as he had power to kill with a touch. Nobody would cross him, and he was made chief in a bunch of different tribes and would have at least one wife from each tribe, ending up having about 33 wives whose ages ranged from 10 years old to 22 years old. He was eventually given a nickname, which I found two different versions, El Rey Tolareños or El Rey Huero, which meant the Blonde King, even though he wasn't even blonde. He had brown hair. But anyways, this was his new name, and he pretty much just went by that instead of James from then on, at least around the Indians. He set up a few trading posts, basically 7-Elevens of the 1800s, and he had a bunch of Indian servants who worked for him as gold miners, uh, making him a ton of money. As the Blonde King, he was entrusted to be the banker of a bunch of different tribes, so one day he went to San Francisco to deposit some gold. Literally a barrel of gold that he just rolled around town. He brought with him one of his wives and a Miwok chief named Jose Juarez, he wanted to show up Jose to teach him a lesson on white superiority, which sounds really bad, but his intent was to scare Jose because there were talks about an uprising of the tribes against the white man. So if he could show Jose that there was no hope in a war against the whites, he could essentially keep the peace. It didn't work. The blonde king got drunk and gambled away all the money that he was entrusted by the tribal leaders. Jose tried to get Savage to stop, but this embarrassed him. Being talked to like that by an Indian in front of the other white people 
was just not okay. So Savage knocked him down with a punch. On the way back to their home, they came across a group of Indians who were talking about an uprising. The blonde king got up and delivered a great speech about the need for peace, and then let Jose have a chance to back him up. But instead of backing him up, he got back at him, announcing to the crowd that Savage was a charlatan who gambled away all their money, beat him up, and was using his influence for personal gain. That the blonde king was in fact not a friend, but a fiend, and they must kill the white man with rocks and arrows. So, we have the California Indian Wars, which began essentially right after California became a state. There were a bunch of little wars going around California, and the, and the Indians around Mariposa, which is where Savage mainly lived, wanted to get back at him for what he had done to them. One night at his Mariposa camp, he noticed all of his tribal servants were gone. He viewed this as an omen of an imminent attack to come, so he quickly grabbed 16 men and searched for the missing Indians who were likely heading to join some larger force. Eventually, he saw a big group of warriors from the Kawea tribe and demanded to speak to their chief, who not long ago was a good friend. The chief came out and hardly let the dethroned blonde king speak, then simply told him, that they just killed all of his workers up the, at the Fresno trading post, plundered all of his supplies, left it unrecognizable, and that this was just the beginning. Savage begged and pleaded, but they marched on, letting him live and suffer, knowing this was all his fault. He ran back to his camp where there was a bloodied-up man telling of the horrors at that Fresno post. Turns out there was one survivor. Savage got 30 men and they went to the Fresno Post to see what was left of it. There wasn't much left but horror in the hearts of any that should view what was. A man lay skinned alive, another with 20 arrows stuck in him, trash blowing in the wind, the sound of animals running out into the distance surely to be eaten by mountain lions, flames continuing to consume the shack that once was a great business. Savage looked on, and blamed himself. And now, he had to get revenge. At first, local militias were given the all-clear to quell the uprising, but it didn't work. The Indians were just too organized. Governor McDougal appointed Savage as the leader of the Mariposa Battalion, and he set his sights on the fiercest tribe who was leading in terms of rampages, the Awanichi tribe, which is a type of Miwok led by Chief Tenaya. He chased them out to the mountains where he and his men came upon a place that you may have heard of called Inspiration Point, which overlooks the Yosemite Valley. Savage and his men were in awe. Nobody had ever seen this place before. Its beauty simply brought tears to the eyes of these men. But they had to get back to business, and they set up camp at the foot of Bridal Veil Falls, and eventually named this beautiful area Yosemite, after the Indians they were going after. In Miwok, the word Yosemite means those who kill. The battalion was able to corner the Awanichi and herded them off to the King's River Reservation. And that was the end of the Mariposa War. After all this, Savage went back to his old business of running some trading posts. The Justice of the Peace in Mariposa County, a guy named um, Harvey, decided to lead a squat on the reservation because he viewed the idea of giving away land to the Indians was unfair. While squatting, they ended up killing a bunch of Indians in a massacre. Savage was against this, 
and publicly made it known that Judge Harvey was both a coward and a murderer. Harvey then made it known that he ever saw Savage, he'd kill him. So Savage went after him to kill him first. They cussed each other out, had a fist fight, which ended up with Savage having Harvey pinned to the ground, but his gun slipped out of his holster. Harvey grabbed it quick, shot Savage four times, ran away, and lived a long life, never being charged with any crime. And of course, Savage died. This is the land of sky blue waters, land of cool enchantment. Listen. of sky blue waters to you comes hams the beer refreshing as the crisp cool land it's brewed in the beer that captures for you the wonderful refreshment of this enchanted northland hams mmm hams crisp clean cut to the taste refreshing of lakes and sunset breezes, dance and sparkle in each glassful. Hands are very refreshing. Hands are very refreshing. Hands. Refreshingly yours from the land of sky blue waters. David Maynard was a highly educated man, going to med school when he was 17, getting married at 20, then jumping in the political realm over in Ohio. He started his own medical school and dipped his hand into the railroad, but pretty much lost everything in the panic of 1837. His wife wouldn't let him forget how it was all his fault that they were broke and so on. She cheated on him and made sure that he knew all about it. But for the sake of his children, he stayed with this wench until the kids were of age. At that point, he left for California with nothing but his doctor bag. Being a doctor really helped him finance his trek west, curing people of all kinds of disease, broken bones, and so on, making a few bucks here and there. Not all of his patients lived, though. There was a husband and wife with the wife's mother who was traveling to Oregon to join up with some family that they had already, that had already made the trek. The guy got cholera and died. The mom also got cholera and died. And in her dying breath begged for this doctor to make sure her daughter, Catherine, made it to Tumwater in the Oregon Territory. He promised that he would, and sure enough, did. Along the way, they fell in love, to the point that he decided not to continue south to California in search for gold. He stayed right there and became a logger. Logging was a decent job, and for him was a part-time job since he was a doctor. Soon, he realized he could make a ton more money if he got himself a ship and sold the lumber over in San Francisco instead of selling it to the shippers right there in the Puget Sound. So that's what he did, making over 10 times the amount that he would have. Maynard then used this mini-fortune from logging to build himself a nice little store and bought in bulk. This way, he could sell for way cheaper than all the other stores. He also used a credit system so people didn't have to pay up front like in all the other shops. This really ticked off all the shop owners in the area, and he was essentially told to leave 
or suffer the consequence. At this point, he met a tribal chief who was called Sial, who was friendly to Maynard and made a deal with him to go to Elliott Bay up north and open shop there. And the tribe would supply him with a bunch of salmon that he could then salt and sell to the people in California, which is exactly what he did. Unfortunately, the majority of the salmon expired by the time it got to California. 900 kegs of rotten salmon. The store was built close to the water in the town of DeWamps. He had a good chunk of land, which he laid out the streets in a compass-styled way, but his neighbors didn't like that, so they made the streets on their property how they saw fit. Which is why driving in downtown DeWamps nowadays is just awful. The streets have weird connections, random ends. DeWamps is modern-day Seattle, by the way, and if you know the area, Pioneer Square is where Maynard's land was. Maynard wasn't all into the get-rich idea. He saw DeWamps as a potential great city like New York, so he did all kinds of extra jobs for little or no pay just to see it succeed. For example, the only lawyer in town died in a freak canoeing accident, so he studied up on law, passed the bar, and was the new lawyer in town. There were all kinds of issues with the Indians, so he spent a lot of time keeping the peace with a ton of help from his buddy, Seattle which you would know as Chief Seattle. He saw a need for a blacksmith, so he became one. And as soon as there was a blacksmith in town, he sold the blacksmith shop for pretty much nothing. He was a very hands-on philanthropist. He also believed that in order to build a great city, you needed to provide plenty of vices. So he set up the first saloon, brothel, and casino. At one point, he was made a delegate and voted to divide Oregon into two territories, making the new one they would call Washington. In doing this, they created new counties, one being King County, named after the Vice President William King, later to be renamed in 2005 after Martin Luther King Jr., because William King was a slave owner. Which is interesting, because Chief Seattle literally ran a slave trade in the Puget Sound and had a few personal slaves, including some sex slaves. But, um, anyway, Doc Maynard eventually decided he was tired of the city life and wanted to try his hand at farming. So he moved to New York Alki, which is just West Seattle, and tried to run a farm there, using kelp as fertilizer to grow potatoes. But in the end, he was not all that great. So he moved back to Duwamps, where he headed the effort to have the city renamed Seattle and then built a hospital, which unfortunately didn't do so well because he treated both the Indians and the whites. So most people just went to other hospitals instead. And though Maynard had great rapport with the natives and was sympathetic with their, you know, thoughts, he still believed that they needed to be conquered. During all this, he was able to get a virtual divorce from his first wife back, back east and married that gal that he met on the wagon train. They lived happily until wifey number one showed up in town demanding her half of his estate. In court, they fought, and Maynard was forced to give up half of his original estate, which he no longer had, um, and give to wife number one. But the judge ruled that she was not entitled to it since she did not claim it within the time frame after the divorce. So Doc and wifey number two were all laughing and giddy until the judge said that he also didn't get to keep that half, and it also wouldn't go to wifey number two, but instead would just go to the state. In the end, Doc died in his home, comfortable and beloved by many. His funeral was the greatest the city ever saw, 
and someone at his service said these words. Without him, Seattle will not be the same. Without him, Seattle would not have been the same. Indeed, without him, Seattle might not be. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a ton. I know I did while making it. I'm curious what you found most interesting. Let me know in the comments.